It's November 11th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guests today are Drs. Alice and Nancy Wexler. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, around the room, we've got Charles Wilson. Hi. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. Todd Troyer. Oh. And Fidel Santamaria. Hi, Salma. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Nancy and Alex Wexler are siblings, scholars, advocates, and leaders in the charge to find a cure for Huntington's disease. Nancy Wexler is Higgins Professor of Neuropsychology at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons and President of the Hereditary Disease Foundation. Alice is a writer, historian, and research scholar at UCLA Center for the Study of Women. So uh, in 1968, their mother was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. Almost overnight, their father, Milton Wexler, a celebrated psychoanalyst and visionary, mobilized his scientific and philanthropic resources to create a new kind of research foundation, which assembled creative young scientists to carve a path for Huntington's disease research. Through the foundation's efforts, in 1983, an international coalition led by Nancy had successfully located a genetic marker for Huntington's disease, and by 1993, the group had found the gene. Fortuitously for us, Alice, the historian, was a player of this incredible timeline and chronicles it in her memoir, Mapping Fate, a memoir of family risk and genetic research. So there are a few things I'd like to hit on, since we're lucky to have both of you with us today. Some are retrospective, some are more forward-oriented. So first, of course, is the story of how the HD Collaborative came, first um, came together. Um, that's, it was pretty revolutionary, and I think it's worth talking about that in the context of models for scientific research. And uh, I think this lends itself also to talking about how collaborations evolve as one research phase is successfully played out and another begins. But to contrast that, I'd also like us to talk about some of the failures in the name of science over the history of Huntington's and the ways in which modern research retains power to inflect the culture of a disability uh, the way it has in our recent past. Um, finally, I know our listeners are eager to hear about the present and future of Huntington's research, specifically what we know about what's going wrong and what's on the horizon as far as the cure. So I know that's a lot. And I want to start off first with the history of the Huntington's Disease Collaborative Effort. Nancy, uh, can you start us off on that? Well, uh, we thought if we could find the Huntington's gene, we knew, the one thing we knew about Huntington's is that it was caused by a damaged gene, an abnormal gene. And... Being very uh, naive, we thought since you know, DNA had been discovered in the mid-50s, if we could just um, find the gene, it would be a piece of cake to fix it. Yeah. So in October of 1979, you can remember back to 1979, most people weren't born, <laughs> we had a workshop organized by David Hausman, who is a fantastic molecular uh, biologist at MIT. The idea was to find a marker, just like a variation in the DNA, that was sitting so close to the gene that every time that piece of the chromosome was passed down from generation to generation, the marker and the gene would travel together. The problem is that nobody actually knew how to find genes and nobody knew how to find markers. But most of this was pretty theoretical. It had taken two years to find a DNA marker anyway. That was, you know, remember in 1979. So we just thought, okay, well, if it took 100 years, you know, we better start. Um, and uh, the Hereditary Disease Foundation started a collaborative group, first of all, to, to really try to find a marker. Now, it helps to have a huge, big family because more instances of being transmitted from generation to generation across the families, uh, you're, you're more able to see 
the action of, you know, of the traveling pattern of a marker in the gene. It's like, you know, somebody that wears uh, red ties all the time. Every time they have Huntington's, they have a red tie. If they don't have Huntington's, they have a blue tie. So it's, it's not, it doesn't, you know, it's not a part of the disease. It's just a next-door neighbor. So uh, I, in that same year of 79, gone down to Venezuela, and we thought, oh, you know, those are huge families. <laughs> and, um, and since that time, we've actually put together a family tree of over 18,000 people. Uh, who inherited the gene from a woman named Conception living in the early 1800s. Um, but again, we were really uh, naive. Thank God. You know, if we were naive, we never would have tried it. You know, I think there's a lot to be said just to be ridiculous and outrageous and, and, and not think about the perils. You know, we just saw that. You know, um, how, do, you know how do you put one foot in front of the other? And the, so in 1983, we found we actually found the marker, but then we realized that we were that the marker was like a million base pairs from the gene. It was gigantic. It was like from base camp all the way up to you know top of Mount Everest. So we said, okay, well we better have some really skilled people in trying to actually find the gene. So uh, my dad uh, convened the gene hunters. And the gene hunters uh, met four times a year at least uh, for a decade. And really, uh, just it was incredibly difficult, but also just exhilarating you know, to try to figure out you know, how these technologies work. They invented about 14 different techniques, which were then used uh, throughout the world. They helped start, we helped start the Human Genome Project. And, um, uh, and at the end, you know, we were actually successful. But what really made a huge difference is everybody decided, by the way, to collaborate, to work as a group. So no first author, no last author, couldn't be aced by your neighbor or your competitor. You know, every, the success of the whole group depended on everybody sharing. And so people really, uh, you know, day in and day out, you know, they shared DNA, they shared information. And so, little by little by little, you know, we actually found the Huntington's gene itself. So I think it, it, it's really a model of how you can collaborate because the whole problem was extremely difficult. And if we hadn't collaborated, you know, we never would have found it. So I think that, and, and people were very, um, even that were young postdocs who were spending, you know, or graduate students, you know, for longer than they should have, you know, before starting the rest of their career, they were still rewarded for doing that. They but it was a risky endeavor, though, oh, yeah. for yeah. for the young um, postdoc to get involved in this project that may take a hundred years to or yield any kind of yeah. results. Yeah. So how was it? So this was motivated mostly by your father, yeah. just getting on the phone yeah. and calling people up. Well, I think and David Hausman actually did. David Hausman did a and Bob Horvitz did a big thing. I don't know Bob Pines for a couple of years. And I think it was also Nancy actually, uh, who um, very very much played a role in keeping everybody together, keeping everybody motivated, uh, and even making it seem like fun. Um, I would say both you and Dad. Paid a lot of attention to all of all the people involved. You know, 
And another thing that was part of it, I think, uh, at least from the, in the workshops, even before this collaboration started, was to bring uh, people with Huntington's to the workshops so that people who work in the labs who maybe never saw a person with Huntington's actually saw the disease and saw a person with it. So um, I think that was very motivating in general to a lot of the scientists. So I'm kind of curious about what was the... Um how unique was the data set? So it seems crucial to get this huge data set from all the families. And how long did it take before a comparable data set was gathered for any other uh, genetic disease? I mean, it seems like that first step of getting this very rich data set that you have that that's a unique thing to start with is really helps to keep the focus. Well, um, you're right. And I think that, that uh, we were lucky you know, to, to be in a culture that also, you know, believed in very large families. And I think uh, at the same time as the, the gene hunters were looking for Huntington's, um, Jim Cazella and Reed Tansy were part of the team, said, well, you know, why don't we, uh, all kids with Downs tend to get Alzheimer's if they live long enough. So why don't we look on chromosome 21 to uh, see if we can find a gene for Alzheimer's disease. And so, actually, so the map of 21 was, you know, very, very complete, you know, lots of different genes. And actually, while we were, you know, looking for Huntington, they even found, uh, you know, April E, I mean, not April E, but, you know, one of the, you know, the A-beta genes on 21, that's like a major cause of Alzheimer's. And while, uh, again, we were looking for Huntington's because 21, was so well mapped. Uh, very tragically, Rod Ferguson's father got diagnosed with ALS. And so we said, well, you know, why don't we do the same thing for looking for an ALS gene? Uh, and, uh, but again, you know, it's really hard to find families with these diseases, especially if they're fatal diseases. You know, people don't tend to either have big families or live in one. So uh, Bob Harvest looked on chromosome 21 just because the map was very complete. Boom, boom, to sound um, SOD, <laughs> right? Which is like, you know, uh, a major cause of uh, the Gehrig's disease, and it's been used for all the animal models. And uh, gradually people were looking you know, for breast cancer, kidney cancer. But I think really that probably still the Huntington's families in Venezuela are the largest families. And then people tried just making normal maps uh, from Venezuela and from, you know, Utah families. Because if you, if you could just figure out the order, you know, that looks really critical. You know, where, what homes of the genes and what order are they in? So um, something called SEC was uh, organized to try to do that. We were participating. I don't know of another comparable company. So um, in, in order to get everybody to collaborate so well over so many years, what was the key to achieve that? Was it just did you just instill a sense of higher purpose in everybody? I mean, you know, in science in general, it's a very competitive field, and everybody's always holding their cards tight to their chest and don't want to give away anything. And but somehow you, you manage to bring all these scientists together to to you know come up with this common goal and actually share with each other without fear of getting scooped or anything like that. And, I, I still don't know how, how that came about. 
Well, I think partly, I mean, sure. I mean, I think you always sort of want, oh, well, in my lab, I'm going to see that HCG appear, you know. I, in my piece of DNA, you know, my little tube here. And so partly what we do, and, and we sometimes have, you know, every year we have workshops down the island a lot because one of the families with Huntington's disease was um, helping support the research. We took all the, the team down to everybody was like, Climbing palm trees and you know, going fishing uh, <laughs> and hanging out and having margaritas. <laughs> but you can only do that if you were willing to take your little, you know, your little, because everybody used like every little tools, you know, little stuff in it. And you had to like, you know, uh, put it on the table. And for a lot of people, actually, you know, the HDG really was in their pocket. They just didn't know it. And then everybody put up the you know, map, here's where the map is. Um, and I think uh, Bob Corbett was really critical in helping motivate because he worked on worms and people were very open, you know, with the, here's the map of the worms, with the genes, and he would say, Huntington's is a fatal disease, you know, how can you not be open? How can you not share? And, uh, you know, just shame everybody. <laughs> and, but also, I think, Having um, it, it, I think it was so hard. Really, I mean, if you look at you know back then, the ways that you'd even find the gene were making it. They were paper clips. They were thread. This stuff was like in the museum that everybody was inventing. You know, they were um, paper towels that would have fluorescence. I mean, they were just ridiculous things. Uh, they'd never been used on human DNA. People were using them on you know other creatures. And uh, it was so hard that people really, the, whole, the success of the entire group really depended on everybody being successful. That, you know, that Charlie, you know, you had to be successful because that was the only way the rest of them could be. So, so everybody really, really um, got more, you know, motivated to have the group share. And because they had agreed, I mean, they agreed. First of all, to publish as the group, but also the, along the way, you could publish, you know, um, first authors as, you know, teams, because there were seven different PIs. You know, there could be, you know, five to ten people per PI who changed over the decade, you know. Um, and so that you could have first author, last author, collaborations, so you could get rewarded. But the only way people were going to get satisfied, you know, is if they shared because um, because they had decided to publish it as a group, so it really became kind of a group goal to to succeed, and you knew that even if it should shut up in your lab, you know you, you had to publish it as a group. You had to tell everybody, and also I think that's and also that they just we met a lot of families with Huntington. Some of them went down to Venezuela, you know, which is very dramatic and really keeps motivated, and. They know they knew people who went from being, you know, kids to you know, with Joe Huntington's to dying. Uh, people who you know uh, went from being normal to being affected, and so I think that, that they really understood, you know, this is a devastating, fatal, fatal, terrible, horrible disease. But yeah. also, we, we made a lot of fun of it. There's one little little postscript, however, which is that the gene got patented. One person, one lab afterwards. 
So you can only sustain that for so long. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so what about that? How, how, once the gene was discovered, there was an abrupt end, there was a successful end to that phase of the, of the project. Did the collaborations continue? I know the gene itself was patented, but how has that collaboration sort of played itself out in the phase to find therapeutics and the cure? Well, you know, I think... Um, there's a real difference, I, think I guess, in the beginning. In I mean, for example, you know, one, one of the team leaders is Francis Collins. He went around, you know, found breast cancer, he found, uh, he went led the Human Genome Project from the NIH, and now he's just the new director of the NIH. You know, he was an HD team uh, hunter, finder. Um, and I think that in the beginning, and then people, you know, started making animals, flies, mice, that could actually put the human HD gene you know, in these uh, models. And people really do still collaborate. It's not in the same, you know, as, as a group because in a way, you know, the mission's a little bit more complicated. Um, and, you know, I mean, in, you know, in life and you know, reality, I mean, they're always like, you know, ups and downs. Uh, I mean, you know, that's just part of nature. But I think that the Huntington's community in general, because of this experience of you know, being with the gene hunters, uh, really um, just collaborates a lot. People are very, you know, you know they tend to be you know, open about what they're doing and their discoveries and you know, willing to share. Uh, you know, I've heard in other diseases, like Alzheimer's, other diseases, uh, it's can tend to be you know, much more cutthroat and much more you know, competitive. And, you know, the stakes are higher, or whatever the treatment is might be more you know, lucrative. But still, I think in the Huntington's community, um, you know, we just we, we sort of grew up doing a lot of things together in a Venezuela team. You know, we go down every year. You know, and you go, uh, you know, <laughs> same people. You know, in their sort of most um, extreme situation, you learn to trust people, know people, and get along with people. And I've been told by a lot of people that the Huntington's community as a community is still a lot more collaborative, collaborative than that. It's still, you know, absolutely, it's definitely true. It's still a friendly, cooperative group of people, and reagents are shared more readily than, than the norm for neuroscientists. And the and, and it's partly, there's partly enforced by the environment that's created by the HDF and the HDF workshops and the funding program and everything. A lot of that structure that created friendly cooperative relationship is still there. I mean, once it could imagine all well, the gene was found and then everything disappeared, but it didn't. The HDF is still there, they still have workshops, people still get together, people still have fun, and they still talk about having to make the next step and what the next yeah. step ought to be. It's just that there, the there are lots of different choices about what the next step ought to be, and one of them doesn't stand out. I think right. when, the, when the goal was to find the gene, it was clear that you might or might not think that finding the gene is going to solve the problem, but everybody agreed that the next thing to do was to find the gene. Yeah. It's a well-defined question with a well-defined right. set of tools in it. Well, that's a great sign of tools. <laughs> <laughs> and you find the tools. So this is a great success story. Um, but uh, I also want to talk about uh, how Alice, you cast kind of a 
sort of more critical eye on science and it's, it's past as far as Huntington's uh, disease is concerned. First, I, I thought I'd give you a chance to, some, to, to tell us some of that, some of our failures um, as scientists in the past. And then do we, do we still retain this ability to, to, to change uh, the culture of Huntington's disease with current science and modern science and the way it's structured? Yeah, well, I think that the, the, a lot of the ethical issues centered around genetics much more than neuroscience, which is you know, a much newer field, actually, as I understand it. Um, and Huntington's, you know, in the past was one of those diseases that um, the, the period of eugenics really wanted to take, you know, uh, stop the, saw the way of stopping this disease or curing it was by preventing people from having children, period. I think that the culture, I think we're in a very different situation now, uh, partly because uh, families have been much more um, visible, outspoken, and active, and, and collaborating with scientists, too. I mean, there's been a lot of contact between families and the scientists, the scientists working on uh, the research in Huntington's, which I think has been really positive. And for a lot of other reasons, we're in a really different situation. Um, of course, you know, with, with new advances like the possibility of genetic testing now, that poses new ethical, a uh, whole new set of ethical issues. Um, but I don't think we're going to repeat the mistakes of the past, um, actually. Uh, and uh, I, I think I, I feel very optimistic about the the future, uh, even though we don't know when a cure is going to come about, I mean, this is not a given. And it took a long time to find the gene. It could be a very long time to find a cure. But we do have treatments now. You know, it's not, it's, it may be an incurable disease, but it's not an untreatable disease. And that's a big difference. And then there's a possibility uh, with a new genetic technology uh, which is a controversial one, but uh, there is a possibility of uh, pre pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for those people who have access to this technology and who make that choice to have uh, children without passing on this gene. I think, I mean, Huntington's is one of those catastrophic diseases, you know, that um, uh, I think all the people... The family members certainly feel like they would like to stop this disease. I know with, uh, with other kinds of disabilities or less severe diseases, people think, well, you can have a good quality of life, you know, even if you do have those disabilities or disease late in life. And it's true, Huntington's is later in life. So, um, you know, you think, would you not want to have a Woody Guthrie or uh, so forth and so on? But, but I think... Um, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty severe disease that can wipe out entire families. You know, and um, so so it's 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 hope it's a hopeful period now. There are new new possibilities. So let's talk about um, hunting the Huntington protein. Like, what what is the major malfunction? What's the current the status of what we know about what's going wrong in Huntington's? The major uh, problem. Huntington's protein is it misfolds. Um, it is totally gigantic, uh, 3,500 base pair and amino acids. Uh, it's never been purified. <laughs> Despite many good attempts, it's full of heat and heats. Um, it is 
uh, if you knock it out in a mouse, the mouse never uh, matures, so it's embryonic lethal. So at least in development, it seems to be performing you know, some useful function. But we don't really exactly know, even now, you know, after finding, you know, finding it in 93, we still don't really know exactly what it does for a living or for a mile of it. I mean, uh, it's been really mysterious. And it um, does very different things in different parts of the nervous system, so... Well, you know, I don't even think we know that. I mean, we know that, it, I mean, definitely it misforms. You know, it, it forms itself, uh, misforms itself into aggregates. Um, there's a lot of, you know, discussion and, and argument about these aggregates and what they do and if they're toxic or they're protective. Um, it, but, uh, and there's certain, you know, areas, uh, and, but these aggregates really are almost throughout the brain. They're a little more common in children, which is sometimes. They're in the nucleus, they're in the cytoplasm, they're in dendrites. Uh, but I think it's really, and you know, they. Charlie, you want to. I don't, didn't want to interrupt you. But I was just going to say that the, one of the first surprises when, when the gene was identified, uh, uh, unpleasant surprise, was the discovery that it was ubiquitously expressed. So I think everybody, you know, everybody knows that in Huntington's disease, there is cell death in the striatum, and that it gets worse and worse as the disease progresses, and there's always been the notion that the disease was caused by the loss of those cells, sort of the way Parkinson's disease is caused by the loss of the, of the dopamine cells. And so even though the, the implications of that weren't clear, it was sort of thought, well, it's going to be expressed in those those cells, the spiny cells in the stratum that die. And that that, you know, the first thing to do with it, with the gene, is to, is to see when and where is it expressed. And it turned out, it was just expressed everywhere all the time. And, uh, and anyway, for me, because I was thinking that this was a sort of thing that the brain scientists could contribute to, it uh, was a really a big letdown. Because <laughs> meant, you didn't have a place to start uh, now, now the question becomes, do we try to find out what normal Huntington does and track that down? It looks like it's going to be a horrendous job to find that out. And it may not actually tell you what mutant Huntington does. And I remember there were discussions about how far should we go in the direction of trying to understand normal Huntington. And then, or should we just not worry about normal Huntington? Should we ask, is it obviously a gain of function? Let's find out what the new function is that's being gained and not worry about it. And the fact that it's everywhere really impeded that task. So it was a, the, the, one of the cool things about this story is that there was just a series of sharpers. You get the marker, you find the chromosome, and it turns out it fell off the end of the chromosome at one point. It was like being followed out the chromosome, you know, step by step, and it just fell off the end. And I remember coming to a meeting and they said, well, the bad news is the gene <laughs> fell off the end of the chromosome. And I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> I had no idea what that could possibly mean. But there are a series of crazy results like that, and the ubiquitous expression of it was was one of those. It was a real shock, and it wasn't what anybody expected. Another one was the fact that 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 it was such a weird protein. It, you know, one of the things you might have thought was. Oh, let's, we've got the sequence, let's figure out what it is, and we'll recognize motifs. 
that will tell us what the function of protein was. And that, so the motif search, initially at least, led to nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. No recognizable <laughs> substructure to this sequence at all. And then, uh, so the, the whole story is a, like a series of sort of crazy outcomes like that. And of course the promise now is that you can make a model animal and so that becomes a, a test bed for everybody's idea. And, and there are many different ideas about what direction to go in. And instead of trying to collect everybody and make them all concentrate on one of them, the, I think this Nancy's strategy is to, because Nancy sets the strategy for people way, way beyond what she thinks she sets it for. <laughs> uh, the, the strategy is to pursue all of those things sort of in parallel and wait for one of them to strike that mother love. That's true. So a lot has been made about this new striatal protein that was found earlier in the year, the res protein. Are you, are you at all uh, excited about any of that research? It's supposed to be inhibit, um, aggregate, or actually, what does it actually do? Do we know what it does? Mr. Ben, Ben, you have to answer that one. I think it's involved in aggregation. It actually inhibits it's most aggregation. Yeah, I think that problem with the rest protein is that, I mean, and Saul Snyder was, you know, uh, found that it, it seems to be more specifically expressed in the basal ganglia and altering it was therapeutic. In, uh, and he's now looking at animals, but then, you know, subculture. The problem is a little bit, I mean, yes, I think it's exciting, but since, I mean, just this problem which I already said, this one is more, uh, res is higher in the basal ganglia. Well, lots of cells die in the cortex. You know, so what about that? <laughs> I mean, actually, one of the things that I think is really exciting is, um, is, a, is a finding that's about to be published in Neuron, uh, in a couple of, I don't know, hopefully in a day. Um, that was, you know, the, so the gene hunters, uh, as Charlie said, you know, they actually made mice, they made flies, and then there's still lots of different collaborations. And even though this gigantic protein of, you know, almost 3,000 amino acids, the first 17 of them actually seem to be um, critical for life or death. And this first 17 even seem to be able to, like, aggregate on their own. So the, the thing that makes them, this, the protein aggregate is how many glutamines you have in the world. So up to 34 glutamines, you're cool. 35 to 39, you may not be so cool. 40, you're cooked. So 40 glutamines in a row, you're going to get Huntington's disease. Absolutely, you live a normal lifespan. However, <laughs> the very first 17 before all these things actually make a radical difference. And so people have been looking at the uh, differential phosphorylation of these first, I mean, they're looking at it all throughout the protein. But in particular, the in the first 17, there's uh, serines 13 and 16, which are differentially phosphorylated. So if you make a phosphomimetic, then you actually can uh, cure the mouse. And if you make a phosphoresistant, mouse gets clumps, dies, has psychiatric problems, and motor problems. <laughs> so, you know, how did that happen? So, and just by totally, you know, and so, so William, William was the creator of, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, but we really thought that having every animal model 
was terrific. And in fact, we had the human protein. It was terrific. In fact, you could make, you know, knock ins, knock about, knock around, you know, and transgenics. Uh, was terrific. And so Jill Bates made the first transgenic, which uses a little fragment. But that taught us a lot. Then William put the whole full length in a back, you know, a back bacterial artificial chromosome, put the entire human honeybees, plus all of the, you know, the regulator stuff, um, into a uh, you know, chromosome to make a transgenic mouse. For example, in those, I don't know too much about this, but, but uh, if it is a misfolding, Problem. I mean, expressing it in bacteria, well, no, such a large. He puts it in the mouse. So oh, he, okay. He, yeah, he just puts <clears throat> that. He just puses the, the back in an ES cell. Uh-huh. Okay, I, mean, I was going to like when bacteria things we yeah, fall. Yeah. No, no, bacterium no. is yeah. used just, as, just a as a vehicle instead of a yak. Okay, but still, right? But then it goes into the mouse. Goes into the mouse. Okay. Make a separate ES cell. But then, wouldn't this be arguing to the rise, the rise of new use of the right of, of new technology like uh, biomarkers and uh, and if you don't know what it binds to um, ideally I mean, uh, you can think about experiments in which you can isolate this protein you don't have to crystallize it you just have to put it in little wells and then pass um, all the proteins you can think about right and see which one sticks like which one did you think about I don't know. I'm thinking about anyone, anything, <laughs> right? But um, and then I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, uh, biomarkers and proteomics and metabolomics of uh, 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 and see to see in which uh, biochemical pathway this protein is involved. Maybe it's involved. In, the, the fact that it's ubiquitous doesn't mean that it's ubiquitous. Right, that is involving every like uh, uh, that is a protein that is actually is involved in every single biochemical uh, pathway. Right. So, so I think actually that that is a strategy that people are following. And one of the first things I heard about after the the protein was available were, were experiments on what will it co-migrate with and right. gels and then there were several very uh, promising observations. But then, but then you get something like, oh, gee, it migrates with hat. Well, what's hat? Huntington's associated protein. There's like, you know, about 103 different reactors, and they all seem to be more, you know, down actually, you know, in the area that's toxic of the gene, the engineering. But so it was great. Nancy was yeah. going to let you uh, propose some experiments. Yes, uh, exactly. she, she was already in advanced mode. Has anybody tried to do the protein folding analysis? Like put it in computers, and if you know at least uh, the first, it seems that like you know the first few amino acid sequences, right? I mean, and, and you know if if you phosphorylate uh, certain serines, then the charges might change, and that might change the folding of the protein, right? Has, are there uh, protein models of, even if they don't have the crystallography, you can still speculate, right? I think there's also been a lot of speculation even about, you know, what, uh, what's the form? Is it uh, amyloid? Is it beta-cleaved sheet? Is it alpha-cleaved sheet? <laughs> Is it non-random coil? And there are arguments for every single wow. one of these things. Okay, so. But Steve Finkheimer actually took part of it and he tried to, you know, crystallize it and make an antibody to make that part. Mm -hmm. 
But there are a lot of weird uh, phenomena at play here. So there's a time factor. There's a time. It's a, the number of polyglutamine or the number of uh, CAG repeats actually determines how late in development you'll actually, or well, in, in real life you'll actually manifest a disease. Is that true? Yeah, partly. Well, if you have 61 and 60 CAGs, you get early 20 or earlier. That's absolutely true. Um, and but if we have between, you know, ninety percent of everybody worldwide has between forty and fifty CAGs, and we, so if you look at everybody, the, you know, there's definitely an inverse correlation in the number of CAGs, and, and age onset accounts for, you know, seventy-two percent of the variable. Look at everybody, but if you just look at the people forty or fifty CAGs, which is most of it, everybody, it only accounts for forty-four percent of the variable. And then there's 21% that's accounted for by other genes and the rest of it by environment. But that's so what you're interested looking at for other remodelers. I mean, that is one of the interesting things about it that you can have the same number of CAG repeats and have very different ages of onset. 20 year difference. Yeah. So, what here's exactly the same gene mutation, very different outcome. Why? This is a very encouraging thing, right? Because it, it suggests that. A leverage point. Exactly. You could find the correct leverage point. You could move the age of onset to, to 112, right. and it's effectively a cure. Yeah, exactly. Some people get it in their age, and they're actually so mild that a lot of times it's missed until the next generation gets it. So, are there any spontaneous occurrences of? So, although we didn't used to think so, but now that we have a gene, we can do a DNA test. I mean, it used to be when we found a new case, you could say, oh, well, the father's not the father. Now you can actually prove the father is the father. And uh, usually, it, it comes from expansion in sperm. And if you, if you study sperm in Venezuela also, because you want to see what, what's the, because mostly kids who are affected have an affected father. So the anticipation, which is you know getting an earlier generation after generation, usually from the dad. Uh, and if you look at a sperm sample, I mean these guys are very individualistic, just like every man around this table here. <laughs> so each brain has a mind of its own, and each one has a, a CAGP line, which is different. And the normal men are like that. Uh, and with, so up to Lots of uh, normal men can have up to 34. So that's beginning the, the threshold of expansion. And if you have 34, 40, uh, then in the next generation, so you may won't get sick yourself because you, your own self, has a small number. But your sperm, uh, you know, going out to the children, it gets larger and larger, and then there are new cases in, in general. If a woman has, like, you know, one woman in Venezuela, she had, her dad was affected, um, she was got affected at 14, she had 73 piece. You know, she had 76. Her daughter had 73. So once she had her huge repeat, it's not going to really contract. And her daughter got sick at 6. So, you know, you know there's other things also that's moving in the age of onset. And then the is really awful. 
It's usually it manifests differently in children. Yeah, it looks like Parkinson's. You just study Parkinson's. It's very rigid, tremor, lacrimia, seizures. And homozygotes are present differently. I see, we actually went to Venezuela to find homozygotes because we uh, we just been learning about Baron Goldstein found familial hypercholesterolemia by looking at homozygote for heart disease. And so we, we heard in Venezuela that there was a lot of consanguine families where you know, couples, both of whom had Huntington's, were having kids. So we said, great. And in 79, when I first went down there, we were just looking for uh, double dose because we thought, oh, that's going to be obvious. It won't be the normal protein. And so the normal protein won't be masking what the Huntington's protein is doing. So, uh, we found a family right, in this little still village, you know, or nowhere, in uh, sort of Lake Park Highway, like a tier box. So it's way down in the bottom of the tier. And we went by, you know, motor and jeep and you name it. And, and it's built on stilts because there's a lot of kind of jungly stuff on the land. We don't want to do it. We found uh, both parents had Huntington's and they had 14 kids. And they're the mother had three miscarriages right off the bat, so we thought, okay, probably was the homozygotes. Because we knew, you know, with dwarfism, if you have a double dose, it's like lethal. So we just thought, you know, you know, we, in fact, <laughs> one of the reasons that we said let's switch to looking for the gene down there is we thought you can't live with Huntington's. And one of their daughters had Huntington's in her 20s. So both parents were affected, one of the twins, but the rest of the kids just looked normal. She looked normal. Uh, and then we saw this little, you know, two-year-old that also in the video was like, that was unbelievably affected. So he was affected too. Um, again, uh, with these incredibly different symptoms. But then, to our shock, when we found the marker, we actually went down and looked at that family. And actually, a bunch of the, the people there do are homozygous. They do have a double dose, and they are some of them are totally normal. You know, they have no, you know, they're young, no symptoms, they're no early onset, they're not cognitively more affected, motoric more. I mean, when they get sick, they just get sick like a, like their brothers and sisters. You cannot differentiate, you know, somebody from one dose to two dose. And uh, and then when we found the gene itself. You know, really, they're definitely, you know, they really are homozygotes. Uh, and not only that family, but other families. And the amazing thing is that, um, you know, I mean, or the, or the terrible thing is that 100% of their kids get sick. So, because all they have is abnormal genes to pass on, that's it. So, 100% of their kids. But the extraordinary thing, I think, just exactly what Charlie was saying, that, um, that there's a gain of function that we just hadn't even really thought about. You know, it's not really a loss of function, but the but the normal genes, so the normal, that the abnormal genes, both abnormal genes, are serving a totally normal function until somewhere along the life they screwed up. <laughs> and uh, and so that's helped us in some sort of kind of think about you know treatments or what might be true or what's going on with the protein because. It doesn't fit a gain of function model. Although sometimes people say, well, 
it, it could be partial loss of a normal function, like it would be DNF or something. But uh, it's amazing to me. That yeah, it's nothing like having a knockout because that would have been the Yeah, exactly. So right away, you sort of think, well, that it, it rules out a, a lot of the ways that that the mutant protein can work. But it also means that for them, the normal protein isn't helping them because, you know, they they don't have it, <laughs> so you know they're admirable ones doing the thing. And if we could figure out how you know what are what are we both of them doing, and again you know, could we keep them doing that longer, you know, that could be good. One of the amazing things about this story that we haven't talked about was it was the funding aspect of it. But in addition to organizing all of the science, the Traditional funding mechanisms weren't <coughs> actually considered adequate <laughs> to move this thing forward. And so the you know, Wexner family just created a foundation for funding Huntington's research, and it became the, maybe the primary, or at least one of the primary ways that Huntington's research got done and continues to be one of the primary ways for Huntington's research getting done. And it's not something that scientists normally think of. You know, we normally say there isn't enough money for the important work that we're doing, but it's pretty rare for us to go out and just find our own money to pay for stuff. So that was quite an amazing feat to be doing at the same time as the scientific job. And I guess the, the fundraising had to be, you know, wasn't done sequentially. It was all done in parallel. Right? The science and the fundraising. And it, it seemed to me that one of the secrets of that one of the tricks that made it work so successfully was the same kind of the, a, a slightly permutated version of the same trick they use with the scientists. So get the scientists close to the patients, and you and you get the commitment from the scientists. Get the the donors close to the science, and you get commitment from the donors. It was that like an explicit strategy? Yes. <laughs> but then we. You had to tell about some of the parties you went to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really good parties. <laughs> the scientists were excited to be close to the donors because a lot of the trustees of the, uh, of the Hereditary Disease Foundation were the famous movie stars and uh, you know other kind of famous people. Frank Gehry, uh, kind of people that we don't normally get to meet. And we would be at a, the parties she's talking about would be for dinners, I guess, the sort of dinner that went with the workshops have long been a sort of very uh, precisely planned piece of the psychological manipulation that was going on <laughs> and that and they everybody knew they were being manipulated. It wasn't like it was secret. Uh, but uh, you would go to you go to one of these parties, it would be held at some kind of place you normally would never get to go to, some kind of an amazing art exhibit or something like that. And then you would be there at a party with with the famous movie stars, with Carol Burnett and with uh, Julie Andrews oh, and Wicked with Jennifer yeah, that's Jones. Right, that's right. So uh, and Norton Fire. Uh, yeah. You know, I I was going to not to not to stop talking about the party, but, but you know, there there are two questions that still, after all this time, I think I think are not resolved yet, or maybe you could kind of that are really interesting. One of them is the role of the aggregates, that here is these clumps of this uh, protein that clumps up. And the question, you know, the question is, is it toxic or is it protective? 
that's a pretty big difference. And, and, and I'm not sure if that's been resolved. And the other question is the question of suicide or murder. You know, are the, are the cells being attacked and then they die, or are they self-destructing? I, mean, I don't know if you want to comment on how... Do we know the answers to those questions? It seems pretty fundamental. Yeah, those, what's amazing about those is those are neuropathological questions. In a way, they are the most old-fashioned <laughs> questions that you could ask, and they are the first kinds of questions that come up when people get to understand the problem. You look at it and you say, well, um, that seems like something we ought to know. And it doesn't sound like it would be that hard to find out. And so people decide, I'm going to sit down and, and work on that. And problems like that have drawn a lot of people into that issues. But they turn out to be really, really hard problems. The problem of murder versus suicide, which occurs in all of these neurodegenerative diseases, basically, uh, never seems to get resolved in any of is it irrelevant then? Do we not need no, to I know those questions? No, I think we do. I think it's absolutely not irrelevant. But it, it just, sometimes the simplest, most straightforward kind of question turns out to be uh, just the hardest. So there's actually an answer with apoptotic mar markers uh, correlated with the presence of these clusters. Yeah, but there's no question that in some sense the cells disassemble, they, uh -huh, they, they, they break that, they right. die. Right. And it's not like somebody's coming along and eating them. That's, mm -hmm. that's clear enough. But, but one of the other cells could be depriving them of a growth factor that they need. It could be scavenging the like, Who triggers the apoptotic signal? Right. There is an that's apoptotic exactly right. signal. Okay, that's, that is very complicated yeah. to determine. Uh, even in non-hunting phase, right? right? In any, any system. Just going back to the, you know, to the funding question. Really, from the very beginning, you know, Dad started having uh, seed money grants and, and funding grants, and, but really also funding postdocs. He really thought postdocs, the workshops were really just, you, know, you had to have like young people, you had to have a mix, young and, and senior. You didn't want to have only senior people. They all of us have got seniors, so that was a little embarrassing. <laughs> 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 you know, because the young people are, you know, dynamic and innovative, and having, um, the, the, the seed money to actually, because people very often said, oh gosh, you know, uh, I can do this. <laughs> Somebody was working on, you know, um, the Viz gang of you know, the Viz gang of and, and birds, and he said, well, maybe I should just be tool for mice, right? <laughs> uh, and somebody else said, uh, well, gosh, I'm working on yeast, you know, but maybe I could use the yeast uh, to screen for Toxicity for Huntington's, you know, for therapies. So I think one of the, and we really try to be very interactive. So we don't want people to waste their time or, or money, you know, doing projects that are irrelevant or you know, unimportant. But they have, you know, the money because the government really, you know, tend to be very um, slow on its feet to fund all things if they ever do fund anything. So, uh, and our feeling is that if we could fund the seed money to get preliminary data, then people have much a better chance to get government funding. So we funded the NEA, we funded Joe Bates, and we funded Derby Bates, and we're doing RNAI interference. So I think that um, there's a, a role, and also a role for you know great science uh, board like Charlie, because the science board really has sort of big Sure, it's just like you're saying, you put it in the context. You know, these are the kinds of questions that you know, are really hard to answer, and they are important, or they're not important. You know? So 
I think it, we, we have a very we're lucky in such a thing in our, in our active science like you, you know, so that you can really you know, make sure that people aren't wasting their time. So it seems like this effort's been like kind of innovative and groundbreaking in so many different ways. And it's kind of interesting to take apart how much is specific to the way Huntington's is, and it's particular to Huntington's versus some other diseases. So you must get lots of people coming to ask, so we want to do this for, you know, I'm interested in this disease, and I want to do why, how can I do what you're doing there, like in Huntington's, and make that happen somewhere for, you know, disease X. So what do you tell them? Good luck. <laughs> 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 no, 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 no. I don't think it's specific to Huntington. You know, I think if we can, uh, I mean, I think like um, Westy Gage, who was part of our science board also for a long time and was not done so. So he was really Christopher Lee, uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that, I mean, it's like, you know, if people, if people do the same thing and it works, great, you know, if, we, if they want to help all these other instances and other diseases, you know, I think, you know, more power to them, I think it's terrific. So, uh, I mean, we're very encouraging, sometimes we go with them and, you know, find out what kind of organization they have, or, you know, help them, shape them. So are they pretty similar? Or it, well, sometimes they are in some Well, but polyglutamine diseases, I mean, it seems that there's a similarity from what you say. I mean, there are finally a polyglutamine diseases, right? And I think fragile X is another example, right? And, and that is pretty clear what happens to the gene, right? Yeah. It's like it, it's akin. I think Tom is looking at homologies in the uh, in the organizational no, structure. I'm still in the It's interesting whether I mean whether even the boarding conferences on this Yeah, I mean, is it is there something because of the the commonalities and the the nature of the disease or the way you can point it or the way you can explain it or something that happens that's specific that specifically that makes this model, a certain model of funding and arranging science successful that wouldn't be for some other, like, it, it, I mean, Alzheimer's or something, that's a huge I think most people, most people have thought, thought that HCF was a great model for how to do this. In 10 years, they succeeded in a task that people thought would take much longer. They spent much less money than the federal government spent on this project, or maybe even was spending on the project on other aspects of it. And and so, and, and they raised the money for, for themselves. And I think everybody must have been looking at that and saying, how can we do that? And I know uh, at least some foundations that have adopted the workshop model have tried to do it in the same way. In some cases, I've done it in something that's very close to the same way. I think that, you know, just like as the scientific endeavor was breaking the ground, developing new methods that were used for other things, even collecting data, in, in Venezuela that ended up being used for many other things. The, the foundation also became a template for how to, to do these kinds of things well. I thought that was another huge success. Of the, and even in the money, you know, we, as you said, we, we spent maybe, you know, between our, our family and the federal government, it's like, you know, uh, you know one to five million. In the same period of time, the OCF, 
from the government and private resources, 50 to $100 million for interferences. And then you find that, you know, without a gene lines, they kind of need it, so. But don't you think that, that uh, this um, stresses the uh, point of, uh, I don't want to put, uh, um, say, non-hypothesis-based research, but like the human genome project is a non-hypothesis-driven project, right? It was just, let's map it out, and then we can uncover things, right? The similar things are happening now with these proteomics and metabolomics. And I, it seems to me that, that uh, there are all new issues like the Alan uh, Brain, Alan Miles Brain Atlas or Alan, Alan, Alan Brain Atlas Institute. Uh, it, it, they're mapping all mRNAs, right, in, in the brain. So the, the fact that the, the objective there, instead of, uh, of testing a specific model, is to gather as much information as we can and then by disseminating that data, then new models can be, more models can be created and tested, right? And, and probably it's even economical, it, it makes more sense financially, right? Instead of like having 20 labs doing just one gene at a time, you can just like invest all that money in a single institute. And now with the resources we have computationally and otherwise, uh, to map all the, all the marionettes, for example, in every single structure in the brain. But, but it, 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 it underscores a different way of doing science, in, at least in biology. I think that things are often non-hypothesis driven in retrospect, you know. <laughs> at the time, they're very, you know, hypothesis driven in the sense that you don't know how to do them. You know, I remember even like in that workshop that David Hausman, you know, um, organized. So Ray White was there, and David Blotstein, who also very much part of the human genome, starting it. And Ray spent two years applying the marker. And so Ray and Ray were, they were arguing, you have to map the entire human genome first. You know, and then you look for the HDG. You know, and, I mean, that could take zillions of, nobody really, in order you know, to even figure out how you do it, you know, nobody knew how to do it. And I remember, you know, people were talking about how many postdoc years, and so David got like a little <laughs> bored and said, well, I have a really talented postdoc called Jim Pizzello, I have a bad And we have to do it in Pizzello years. But anyway, so David said, look, why do you want to do that? What you really need to do is um, find a marker and see if it segregates in the family. And uh, maybe you'll get lucky. And, you know, it seems like a waste of time to have to wait for him. But there were, nobody agreed with him. Lots of acrimony and hair pulling and makeup. So, and so, really, I kind of naively asked David, well, does the bigger family, you know, does it matter to have a big family? He said, yeah, the bigger the better. But again, the whole focus was on finding the marker. The whole focus, because there wasn't any, there wasn't PCR, there wasn't anything. You know, nobody knew how to do any of these things. So, uh, and so then I said, okay, well, I'll go to Marcella. <laughs> and then we started collecting the families. But, and, you know, the, we were also collecting what was supposedly the largest family in the, in the U.S., in Iowa. And we wouldn't have found it. You know, the simulation said, yeah, that family was big enough, but it turned out that they were all, you know, an A pattern and didn't, didn't differentiate. So it was the 12th uh, probe that Jim tried. And, and we just said, okay, well, you know, he didn't think it was going to, he uh, didn't think it was right because, you know, by his calculation, 
you should have shown me. I was the only so we said, oh, well, you know, let's, now we have enough of Venezuelan DNA, let's try it. And boom, out there it was, like a logical focal point. So, you know, that was the gene. And, but it was because we had enough Venezuelans because they were very um, heterogeneous. So, we had four or five different generations right off that. But then, so everybody said, oh, well, he, you know, it's just, you know, data gathering, it's all hypothesis driven, or MRNAs, it's just how, you know, which ones do you want to choose, or which ones do you want to have at the library? You know, that's very hypothesis, that they're even going to matter to you in your life. That's very hypothesis driven. Right. But you can just, like, map it, right? It seems like those two things are kind of, and, and they're kind of used in this kind of toy extreme version, like, yeah. we're going to just do everything and not care at all, right? Or we're going to be hypothesis-driven, like you say, that either doesn't mean very much, or it means that you have a specific hypothesis that's going to be yes-no, it's going to tell you that, whatever. And it seems like that some of the success of this whole endeavor is that you had a lot of stuff going on at the level that's in between. Right, where you communicated, well, what's important? What are the questions? And going around, it's not really a hypothesis, but it's not just like trying everything. And you really think about in a kind of a small enough group, uh, but large enough to get lots of ideas, that you really talk about I ideas and what are the questions and what do you mean when you have a question. Uh, you don't worry that it's, you're talking about what's important to do and asking questions. And, and eventually you have to form hypothesis and do experiments, but there's a lot of talk. It's kind of not quite that at that level yet, and so I, it seems interesting. To how do you foster that level of interaction? I mean, that's what a lot of these meetings and so forth. Right, I'm talking about data, right? I mean, the half map is also. I mean, it didn't pan out as much as they wanted it, but um, to see all these variations, genetic variations, and huge populations, I think they did in Icelandic Hasidic populations, right? Uh, and um, first, I mean, to, to have a discussion, you have to have like the both the data, right? The maps, right? So I think in this case, you know, once you have a, a big database, you can go through and mine it. But the actual process of creating that database, meant in vetting techniques, right? Vetting experimental methods, mm -hmm. figuring out how was the, uh, you know, what was the right kind of data to collect, and every, at every little tiny step. Those experiments were all hypothesis-driven experiments where people had, a, you know, a classic design for their experiment right. that, and they had had alternate outcomes, and they were going to decide what to do based on those alternate outcomes. But once actually the whole data set is in front of you, then you you can, I suppose, mine it exhaustively without any thinking. And I guess I wouldn't want to praise that approach as being great. I, it may, maybe it yields fruit, but it's almost a uh, work of machine. It's not really human activity. There's a paper of a computer. I'm sorry for the beginning. I looked at it. There was a full article in studies of a computer with an artificial intelligence that was given how to create biomedical biomedical uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting paper. Yeah, it generated hypothesis based on uh, on the reaction rates of biochemical reactions, and then tried to at the end the objective was to to decipher a specific biochemical network. 
And then the machine uh, generated uh, the hypothesis and, t- and did the experiments. It was a self-contained <laughs> the machine. It's the machine. Don't nice worry, this machine is incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that is an objective right? uh, of some people. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, guys. Alice and Nancy Wexler. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.